0: If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and take them, and you can turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Book of Galatians, chapter 1, and we're going to try to finish out Galatians 1 if possible. While you turn there, I'll say a few things. We live in a day with a devaluation of words. If you just glance your eyes across common things in our day, what most people do, like on social media, you have word limits. You can only tweet so much. Facebook posts you can put a lot, but let's be honest, nobody's going to read it. We, have, we live in a day where pictures dominate. We are image-driven, which isn't exactly a compliment. We're so image-driven that, to quote a famous theologian, Madonna, just kidding, she said, words are useless, especially sentences. We've gotten to the point in our society where we've devalued words in such a way that nothing has meaning. Everything is less than relative. Today, we come to some of the great, greatest and grandest Christian doctrines that are in existence. We, we come to doctrines of union with Christ. We come to doc, the doctrine of Scripture And we come to the end of all Christians, which is the glory of God. And and Paul defends himself against those who are devaluing his words. And we learn again as the apostle comes to teach us to value the word of God. To value your Bible. To value especially the gospel it proclaims. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. We hold this treasure, it's a treasure, in jars of clay. But um, before I read, let me pray, and uh, then we'll uh, jump in. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, speak, O Lord. Your servants listen. Give us ears, and help us to receive the word here in Galatians. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well... Galatians chapter 1, I mean, I read verses 13 through 24. Let's jump in. Paul says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he "'who had set me apart before I was born, "'who called me by His grace, "'was pleased to reveal His Son to me, "'in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, "'I did not immediately consult with anyone, "'nor did I go up to Jerusalem "'to those who were apostles before me. "'But I went away into Arabia "'and returned again to Damascus. "'Then, after three years, "'I went up to Jerusalem. "'I visited Cephas and remained with him 15 days.' But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of God endures forever. He writes truths on our hearts. Now, in your uh, bulletins, you see that I have two points. I, I have vacillated on this, and I told Dorothy I had two points, and I I had three, uh, I had three points, and two points. Now I'm back to three points. So I have different points since in your bulletin, but you will forgive me. I hate three points, but here's a three-point sermon for you. So the proposition is the same: hear and remember Paul's wondrous gospel. Three points: hear and remember Paul's wondrous gospel, the gospel of union. The gospel of God and the gospel of glory. The gospel of union, the gospel of God, and the gospel of glory. Now, let's see if we can accomplish this sermon before our time. Here and remember Paul's wondrous gospel, the gospel of union. Verses 15 and 16, Paul opens uh, as he's proclaiming his testimony. He's just told us that who he was in Judaism. Now he says there's a change. Verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Stop right there. The apostle is in a polemical way telling his testimony, meaning what? He's going against other ideas of who he is. These people are saying one thing and he says, actually, let me tell you the truth. And he comes to address what they're saying about him. The Apostle Paul, in telling his testimony, is knowing these Judaizers are wreaking havoc on this church. And he comes and he says in verses 13 and 14, I was once worse than a Judaizer. I once believed everything they believed, but I went to the actual extreme of what they what they what they hold. He says, I know their doctrine. Their doctrine of, you know, a little bit of grace, a lot of works, righteous equals righteousness with God. That doctrine leads to hatred of Christ. And leads to destroying his church. And he tells you, I know that because I once did it. And now he starts in verse 15 to tell you a grand change that happened to him. And he says, the change was rooted in union with Christ. So he goes not only from telling a polemical aspect of his testimony, debunking the Judaizers. But now he goes to tell us a personal experience that happened in his life. He speaks of this personal experience to tell you that he is no second-rate apostle, right? Y'all remember that? He's being called all kinds of names by these Judaizers who are saying, you know, don't listen to him. He got a second-hand gospel. Well, let us give you the first-hand gospel. They're, they're, and they're probably saying something along the lines in chapter 2, they're from James, they're from Jerusalem, they're from the capital city, one of the pillars of the church, and they know the truth. And Paul says, they're lying to you. But see what he says here. And Paul begins to recount, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in verse 16. And he's calling to mind Acts 9 when he does this. He's calling to mind Acts 9, particularly, he's going to recall his commission, which is in verse 6 and then verses 15 and 16 of Acts 9. But his conversion is recorded Acts 9, 1 to 7. Paul going to Damascus to persecute the Christians in Damascus on fire and zeal has letters from Jerusalem to take them captive and imprison the Christians there. And when he's on the road going to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And but Jesus says, but go, and I will show you the many things you must suffer for my name. And he sends him into the city. And then Ananias comes to him, verses 15 and 16, proclaims to him, Brother Saul, right? His conversion has happened. He's been transformed by seeing Jesus. And here, he gives you the background. Not only his personal experience, but he gives you the the Lord's interpretation of what he experienced. Notice what he says. In verse 15, we begin to get this phrase, but when he who had set me apart... And we talked about this a little bit last week. He was set apart before he was born. He was called by God's grace. But then notice, and this is where we often trip up, and the Judaizers would not have even realized this. He says in verse 16, when he, what was he pleased to do? What what was he doing? When he was pleased, pleased, the pleasure of God revealed, to reveal his son to me we often get the concept that God is not pleased to save these grand sinners. But Paul says, he's the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, it pleased God to save me. God did not begrudgingly save Paul. It was the Lord's delight to save him. And this is the the pity of Jesus, that he does not see people who are in desperate straits of sin, and say, well, I can't wait to condemn them. Rather, the pity of Jesus is greater. He sees men and women in sin, and he has both power and pity mixed together for them. He is ready and willing to save them. That was, was Paul's experience. And notice, he was pleased to do what? Reveal his son. To me. Now, you'll notice a little footnote by two in your Bible. And it'll say in that footnote that two is the Greek word for in. Now, this is peculiar. It is peculiar because it was not because God would... If you think, if you think about this word for please, it's the word eudekomai, which, which all of you know really well. It was the same word that's used in uh, the three synoptic gospels for Jesus at his baptism. What does God say? The Lord says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Paul doesn't make distinction here. And this is one thing that you must note. In John 17, 23, when Jesus says, in his high priestly prayer, he says, you know, Father, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one uh, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. He says this, and loved them even as you loved me. And here becomes a beautiful thing about the gospel, something that utterly changed the Apostle Paul, that God was just as pleased with the Apostle Paul when he converted him on the Damascus road as he's pleased with Jesus. And how, how can that even be possible? It is only possible with this one thing, and it's the importance of this word that he says, reveal his son in me. In me. In union with me. Paul was united to Jesus on the Damascus Road. And when he was in that union, God was pleased with the apostle. In fact, if you look at verse 15, who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, it goes into what John Murray wrote his book about redemption accomplished and applied. Because here's what you have to get. Everything that we have in the gospel, your calling, your calling, Your election, if you even all the way, all the all the all the degrees, your justification, your sanctification, your adoption, your 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 glorification—they're all founded in Jesus. This becomes evident in Ephesians one verse four, when when the apostle says, same apostle, different letter, he says, even as God the Father chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Your election is in Christ. You were chosen to be in Him. Your calling is in Christ. He calls us out of the world into His own kingdom. Your adoption to be made a son is because Jesus' own sonship and Him giving that to you. Your righteousness is not your righteousness. It's His righteousness. And Paul says, this is the gospel that changed me. This gospel of union. It's... It's what he talks about in Ephesians 5 that, you know, there's he says the man and the woman in marriage going back to the the Garden of Eden when he quotes Genesis 2.24. He says it's analogous of Christ and the church. You know, when when a husband and wife get married, all the benefits of the husband uh, become the wife and vice versa. And the same thing is true of you in Christ. We often... In marriage, we forget the blessing of being united to the one we're married to. We forget the blessing it is to be united to our spouse, but and so it is with Jesus. We often forget the blessing it is to be united to him, to receive all of his benefits. And the apostle here he, he's, he was pleased with me to, re- to reveal to me Jesus. But I want you to note that the union with Christ that Paul received Did not lead him to a life of just monkish ecstasy. Let's say that way. Notice what it did in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, He was pleased to reveal his son to me for a purpose, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The purpose of Paul's union was proclaiming Christ. There is a purpose with your union with Christ. There is an end. And hopefully we'll see the end is the glory of God, which actually is where this chapter ends in verse 24. It ends with Jesus being glorified in the church. And hopefully we, we get there. But you are not given the greatest treasure in the totality of the universe to be unchanged by it. it it's, it's very similar to the voyage of the dawn treader whenever... You know, yeah, you this little boy named Eustace, and he ends up stumbling into uh, the dragon. Comes a big dragon comes out, and the dragon walks out, and it dies in the river. And Eustace walks into the dragon's cave. Treasures, everywhere. And you think, could a person with such treasures ever remain unchanged by them? No. And how can we receive the greatest treasure in all the universe and not be changed by it? It's impossible. But the problem is that we think we have greater treasures than Jesus. People treasure wealth, and so they sacrifice, they sacrifice their religion, they sacrifice their families on the altar of career. That we might make much of our, our wealth. People, sacri- uh, people treasure personal aggrandizement, so what do they do? They please everyone around them that what, those people might make much of them. But if we treasure the gospel, if we treasure what, what we have in Christ in the gospel, which is honestly all you have in this world, don't you think if that is your, your abiding treasure day by day, you'll be changed by it? Don't you think you'll share Him and enjoy Him more continually? If he is the center of your treasury, what do you treasure? The apostle here is treasuring Jesus. And so what does he do with his treasure? He proclaims him. Now let's see if I can make some real headway. Um, Here and remember Paul's wondrous gospel. The gospel of union and the gospel of God. Paul is really getting at this point. This is the point of our passage. The union with Christ is a subpoint, but man, it's a glorious subpoint. So just enjoy that. That was free, but the gospel of God. See what Paul says in verse uh, at the end of verse 16. He says, I, So God revealed this gospel to me, and I did not immediately consult with anyone. Footnote: flesh and blood. I didn't consult with any flesh and blood man. Calling back to mind Matthew 16 when, when Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. But my father who is in heaven and Peter and Paul in like symmetry is picking up with Matthew 16 saying, I received revelation from the Lord himself. I need consult with no other man. The Lord has revealed it to me. And since Paul, he's being attacked on these fronts of the authority of his words, he is here to say, this isn't man's gospel. It's God's gospel. He is the source. And so what is the result? I didn't consult with anyone. Because God gave it to me, I consulted with no one. In fact, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You say, what was Paul doing in Arabia? He was not being a monk. No matter what commentators say. Jesus commissioned him to preach. And you see it immediately. In in Acts chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, you see Paul preaching in the synagogue, Jesus. He didn't have to figure out what his message was. He knew the message. And he preached Christ. And so he goes away into Arabia not to figure out what he's going to do with this message. He goes to preach the gospel. He preaches in Arabia, He returns again to Damascus, preaches the gospel, has to be let down in a basket. And then after three years, he goes to Jerusalem. Now notice this. He goes to Jerusalem. Three years is too late to seek Jerusalem's approval of his message. He's not going for approval to Jerusalem. And notice what it says. I went up to Jerusalem for what purpose, Paul? To visit Cephas. I went to visit Cephas. So I went to see the apostle. And I remained with him 15 days. 15 days is too short for Paul to say, I am Peter's disciple. He didn't go up there to have his message confirmed. He didn't go up there to become the disciple of Peter. He went up there to simply make friends with the apostle Peter. That's it. And that's why he says in verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he has to qualify it saying, in what I am writing to you, I do not, before God, I do not lie. Because they would question him. Saying, you're not telling the truth. It wasn't really three years. It wasn't really 15 days. They would question him. And so he backs it with a vow. The authority... And the sufficiency of the gospel is on the line. It's being attacked. It's being attacked not only in Paul's day. It's being attacked every day in our day. People ask, why why do you have to have a Savior who dies? Why do you have to have an atonement with blood? They'll ask things like, why do you believe in a resurrection from the dead? People attack the gospel on every front, in every culture, in every time. Until their eyes are opened to their own sin, the glory of the Lord, they'll never divine what it is to need an atonement. Until they understand what is the promise of the divine recompense in Genesis 2.16, they'll never know the need for Genesis 3.15. And Paul comes, and this would have been reassuring to the Galatians in many ways. They would have heard this testimony and, and been reminded of free grace. They would have been reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus. And my time is leaving. But what Paul believed, Paul believed what God said and he was willing to stand upon it, even if no one else was. It's like John Knox said, a man with God is always in the majority. There can be 10,000 people against you, but if the Lord is with you, you have the majority. The Syrians learned this the hard way. 187,000 men in a night right? Always in the majority. So, found your hope and your in your trust here in the Word, in the Gospel. Uh, Paul's doing really what Adam should have done. He's not believing the lies of the serpent, and he's attacking them at their core. He's getting polemic, which some people love controversy. Some people are less more averse to controversy, but the but you have to know when to stand for the truth. And Paul tells us to stand. Let me really quickly hit uh, here and remember Paul's wondrous gospel—the gospel of union, the gospel of God, and the gospel of glory. The Judaizers—they had a gospel that magnified themselves, that magnified the works they did, the length of their tassels, the fervency of their prayers, the greatness of of their studies. Paul's gospel—he had a gospel that magnified the Savior. And that glorified the Lord. See what he says here. Verses 23 and 24. So he goes through the regions of Syria and Cilicia, leaves Jerusalem. He's unknown to the churches of Judea. And then he says in verse 23, These churches, the churches of Judea, were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And their response. And they glorified God because of me. A lot can be said. But I want you to know, he was preaching the faith, singular, he once tried to destroy. He had the same faith that the churches of Judea, the original churches that originally had the gospel after Pentecost, he had the same faith as they did. This would have debunked all other gospels. It would have debunked the Judaizers from having any authority because he had the same gospel they did. And they glorified God because of the gospel he was preaching. You wouldn't do that if it was a different gospel. And Paul's gospel led to an end where Jesus was magnified. One day this will be what each of us realizes. One day we will all stand in those great halls before the Lord of glory. And you will realize on that day how much the gospel glorifies him. As you see, people from tribes, tongues, and nations gathered around his throne. Elders falling before him, myriads of angels, and thousands upon thousands times 10,000 falling before him, glorifying the Lamb for what he's done. It is a matter of short time before you realize the end of all this world. That, that is not the, the end of which it's coming, but the end for which it was made, which is him. And one day, we will all see this. That you're benefactors of this lamb. You're not the subject of this gospel. You are simply the glad and joyful recipients of it. And so, let's glorify the Lord and live for Him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank You for the gospel. Thank You for our union with our Savior, for the Word of God, and for Your glory. We pray. Come and help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.